freedom for you and for the people around us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thou, O Christ, art all I want. More than all in thee I find. Those are challenging words. Um, Big words to say. Jesus, you are more than everything else to me. Um, We looked at the story of the rich young ruler in our uh, Sunday school class just a little bit ago. And he came to Jesus wanting to know what it takes to receive eternal life, to inherit eternal life. And Jesus told him what it takes. And he looked at the cost. And he looked at what he would get in exchange for the cost. And he said, the cost is too big. It's not worth it. And he went away very sorrowful because he was extremely wealthy. That same decision point is in front of us repeatedly throughout our life where we can choose. Is Jesus worth everything to me? Or is there something else that takes that place in my heart? We've been going through uh, the first letter of Peter, which he wrote from Rome to Christians who were scattered throughout northern Turkey. Um, the church was going from a time of, of growth uh, as, as it started up in a lot of these places into a time of unprecedented persecution. And Peter wanted the believers to be prepared for what was to come. So this was his letter to them, his letter of encouragement, his letter of reminding them of how they had been bought by the precious blood of Jesus and how they had a hope laid up in store for them, giving them what they needed to carry them through uh, this, this persecution that was to come. So today, I think we're at the sixth week of looking at this book. Uh, we're in chapter four. And we're going to go through chapter 4 today, and hopefully next week we'll finish up in chapter 5. So let's read chapter 4, and then we'll get into this. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift... Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, 
Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's just pray one more time. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the power that is in it to transform us and to teach us. And we just ask that you would teach us right now as we look at your word. Show us how you want us to live. Show us again what you've done for us and what our response should be to that. I pray that you would Take your words by your Holy Spirit and empower, make them alive, and give, give us the ability to not only be hearers of the word, but doers. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so we looked at chapter 3 last week, or two weeks ago, um, where Paul was talking about what Jesus had accomplished through his suffering is one of the key things that he brought out in in this theme, this recurring theme of suffering throughout this letter is look at Jesus, look at the way he suffered, look at his response to suffering, and look at what he accomplished through his suffering. Now, Peter writes very differently from the way Paul writes. Paul tends to be fairly linear in his letters, and it's kind of easy to follow the progression of thought. Peter is a little more circular. He, he comes back around to this theme of suffering, and he, he jumps from it out to this idea and to that one, and it's kind of, like, kind of like a hub with spokes that go out in all directions. But the theme of his letter is clear. It is to be faithful through suffering because look at what God is accomplishing through suffering in your life. And there's three, three perspectives that kind of emerge from this letter that will enable us to be victorious through suffering. Number one is we look back at the glorious outcome of Christ's suffering. Number two is we keep a razor sharp focus on how we conduct ourselves through suffering. In other words, how you, how you live as you pass through suffering and trials matters. And number three is we look forward to the glorious outcome of our suffering, which he says is the salvation of our souls. There's a hope that's laid up in store that is waiting to be revealed until the, the return of Christ. Now, he jumps back and forth between these themes a lot through this letter. So don't be surprised if today there's some moments of, hey, haven't we been through this before? Um, because chapter four kind of goes back to some of the things that we saw in chapter two, chapter one, uh, and, and even a week ago in chapter three. We know that we can look forward to triumph as we live in triumph 
Because Christ triumphed. That's what we saw last uh, in, in chapter 3 two weeks ago. We took a close-up look at the sufferings of Christ and what he accomplished through ultimate suffering. His ultimate suffering that led ultimately to death. He suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. In other words, God's ultimate glory was demonstrated through, most clearly, through the most unjust of all undeserved sufferings. Christ, the righteous one dying for the unrighteous, dying for sin. His suffering led to his physical death. But while he was put to death in the flesh, while he physically died, he was made alive in the spirit. Simultaneously made alive in the spirit. And we looked at how when Jesus died on the cross, as he was about to die, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was a spiritual death being separated from God because of our sin that was placed on him that ended in, in his physical death. But when he died physically, his spirit was made alive. Some of his last words were, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. His spirit was going back to be reunited with God because he himself was sinless, though he bore our sins on the cross. And so through his physical death, his spirit was made alive and reunited with God. And we saw that how in this triumph over sin, he went and he preached to the spirits in prison, to the, the spirits that had been disobedient in the time of Noah, which were, were bound to eternal chains of gloom and darkness reserved for judgment, as Jude and Second Peter both reference. And he went and made a proclamation of victory to these spirits that had rebelled against God. So not only did Christ triumph over the devil in the spirit, and over sin in his bodily resurrection, but he ascended to heaven and he's seated at the right hand of God, a position of authority and triumph with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. First Corinthians five says that all things are put in subjection under his feet. And Colossians 2 says he set aside the record of debt with its legal demands, the, the record of debt that was brought about by our sin, nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And Peter's point is, look at the sufferings of Christ and the ultimate triumph that was worked through his suffering and then follow in his steps because God is doing the same thing in you. Through the suffering and the trials that you encounter in your life. He is working through suffering in your life to produce victory and triumph. And in particular, triumph over sin. So that leads us to chapter 4. Since, therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, and we look at the outcome of that suffering... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. That word arm is, is the word that was used when soldiers would put on armor to go out into war. They were preparing for hardships that they were going to face. They were preparing for attacks that were going to come their way. And he says, put on this defensive armor, this mindset, this way of thinking. The word is literally thought. And it's used one other time in the, in, in the New Testament, Hebrews 4.12. Andy, I think you, you referenced this verse earlier. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts 
and intentions of the heart. It's your way of thinking, your mindset. He's saying, arm yourself. Be prepared for hardship by taking on the mindset that Christ had when he went into suffering, knowing that the outcome was going to be triumph and glory. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. This is what we're suffering toward. Triumph over sin. Since Christ suffered to overcome sin, have that same mindset of overcoming sin through your suffering. Now, I think this verse is often made more complicated than than it really is. It's quite simple if you take it in in context with the rest of this passage here and, and the rest of the book. Whoever has suffered in the flesh... It's not talking about self-inflicted suffering or asceticism as a means to eradicate sin. Rather, he's speaking of the kind of bodily suffering that we looked at in the end of of chapter 3, where Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the sin. The kind of suffering, the kind of commitment to God and willingness to suffer that took Jesus to the cross. And we don't suffer in the same sense of making expiation for our sins like Jesus did for our sins, but we have that same commitment saying, I'm willing to follow you, God, regardless of the cost. And he's saying, when you get to that place, being willing to suffer like Christ suffered, you've made a break with sin. You said, I'm not going to live anymore. In, in my former desires, for the desires of, of sin. And that's what he says. So as to live in the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, human desires, but for the will of God. There it is. There's the explanation of what he's saying here. Isn't this what Jesus was saying to when he said, if anyone wants to come after me, he has to take up his cross and follow me? You know, I think we've spiritualized that so much that sometimes we don't even realize what that sounded like. To people who who saw what it meant for someone to take up their cross, when the Romans executed someone, it was custom for them to have to carry their cross to the place of execution, where they were then brutally executed on that cross. These people knew what that cross was. They knew what it meant. They knew what it meant when they saw someone going up the cobblestone street carrying a cross. It was an instrument of death. And Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you must pick up that cross. The instrument of your own death. You can't follow me unless you pick it up. And you're carrying that cross as a statement. I am willing to give up my very life. Everything that I have, everything that I aspire to, I'm willing to put that to death so that I can gain Christ. Someone who has taken up that mindset, that commitment to suffer in the flesh, has made a clean break from sinning. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Arm yourself with this mindset That's what it's going to take. For the time that is past, verse 3, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Now in chapter 1, Peter set forth 
The reason for pursuing holiness, knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things that like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish and spot. And he's saying, look at what you were ransomed from and how you were ransomed from it. Look at the price that was paid to purchase you from your sin. How can you go back to it? And here he's saying again, Look back at the way you used to live just for whatever you you wanted to do. However much time you spent in the past living that way, it's enough. Enough living in sensuality. It's whatever pleases your senses. Enough passions. Enough being a slave to your own desires. Enough drunkenness, excess of wine. Enough orgies, reveling, carousing. Enough drinking parties, enough lawless idolatry. The time that you spent living for yourself, for your own desires, it's enough. Those things consumed your time and attention in the past. 1 Corinthians 6 says, such were some of you. Giving us a similar list, it says, such were some of you, but you are washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is how you make a clean break with sin. Recognize its futility. Recognize that it leads to death. Recognize that it's in the past and it must remain in the past because the time that we spent in the past living that way is enough. Our faces are set to do the will of God. That is the supreme goal of anyone who has been ransomed from their futile ways by the precious blood of Christ and who knows it. Verse 4, with respect to this, with respect to your being done with sin, they, the ones who are still living in sin, the Gentiles, are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Now, it gives a picture here of them being carried along by a flood of wickedness debauchery the flood of their fleshly desires and because they're still living that way because they're being carried along by the flood of their own desires they think it's strange they think it's weird that you don't live the same way and consequently they malign you they blaspheme you they they speak evil of what is good in your life now he's saying This is normal. This is what you should expect from people who are still living in sin. I think that that this is a really important point for us because we have lived in a culture that has been very Christianized. It has had a lot of Christian influence. Guys, this is the the last hundred years is not normal. That's not normal history. What is normal is for those who are unregenerate, who are living in the passions of their flesh and their desires, to hate those who are living righteously. And I think Peter is giving a nod to the fact that the source of our suffering and of our trials is often people who have not made a clean break from sinning, looking at us and saying, the way you're living is evil. Even though, in fact, it's good. God calls it good. They call what is good evil and what is evil good. If we look around, we can see that our culture is rapidly deteriorating to the place where 
you will be maligned for taking a stand for truth, for what is right. You'll be maligned for calling sin, sin. You'll be maligned for saying that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Verse 5, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Here's the differentiator. We know that they will be judged. We know that living and dead will be judged. They ignore that fact. Second Peter says they willfully ignore that fact. They ignore God's coming judgment. And they believe that all that matters is the way they live now. They're ignoring the fact that God says all of us will give an account for the way we lived our life. And this is why, verse 6, because everyone will give an account to God, this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Here's another tough verse that I, I think has been subjected to varying interpretations. Who are the dead that have the gospel preached to them? Um, some say it is those who are spiritually dead um, who have the gospel preached to them. But there's no qualifier here that indicates that it's spiritual death rather than physical. And in the previous verse, he refers to people who are physically dead, saying that everyone will be judged at the return of Christ whether or not they have physically died. Another way of looking at it is that it's those who died without hearing the gospel, that the gospel is preached to them in a sense of giving them a second chance. There's not really any support for this view in the rest of Scripture. And in fact, the point that Peter is making here is precisely the opposite. Live your life with the awareness that you will be judged for how you live this life, for how you responded to the gospel or didn't respond to it in this life. And the third view is that it's those who have heard the gospel but have since physically died. And I think that's what he's saying here. It, it fits with the rest of, of this passage. That it is those who heard the gospel while they were alive. Now they are physically dead. The reason that matters is because they give an account after they die. The reason that the gospel is preached even to people who physically die is because after death comes judgment. In other words, the gospel doesn't only have implications for your life now, here and now. It has implications for your life through eternity, for your life after death. And he's contrasting our physical suffering and bodily death to the life and the glory that will result. It's parallel to what we saw in the sufferings of Jesus, that Though he was judged in the flesh and suffered for sin and died physically, he lives in the spirit. And so will we if we receive the gospel. That is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead. So that even though we die physically, even though we are judged physically in a human sense, we live in the spirit the way God lives. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Seeing that God is prepared to judge the living and the dead, and seeing the temporary nature of our suffering, 
is paramount to enduring through suffering to reach our ultimate triumph. You have to see it as temporary. Um, more so as we see the end approaching. It's interesting that, that Peter refers numerous times to the fact that we're in the last days. In fact, I find all the references to, to the last days in the New Testament interesting in that it, w- it was referring to this current era. That was nearly 2,000 years ago. So I don't, think, I don't think it was saying that Jesus is coming back in the next few months, but that we are in the last era before the return of Christ. This is the time for the church to prepare for the return of Christ because we are in that last era. And as we see the day approaching, as we see the signs of the return of Christ nearing, we should be more prepared. We should take extra pains to prepare for his return. Um, how many of you guys have, have read the book Colditz? Men of Colditz? Fascinating account of, of a prison in Germany where the, uh, the elite prisoners were kept, so military generals from the Allied forces that were captured by the Nazi army, also prisoners who had escaped from other prisons. They were sent to this fortress, to this old castle, the Colditz Castle, where, uh, where they were supposed to never be able to escape because it was an inescapable prison. Well, guess what? You put all the brightest minds from, from the enemy forces in the same castle, they're going to figure out ways to escape. And there's some fascinating things that they did. But what's really interesting about the story is that as the war progressed and as the Allied forces came closer to the Colditz Castle, it became, the situation became increasingly dangerous. And, and the, the men in this castle had to be hyper alert. Their communication had to be optimal. They had to be extra prepared because they didn't know what turn the war was going to take. They didn't know if, if the Nazis were going to take them all out and shoot them at the end. And so they were hyper alert, hyper vigilant, hyper prepared for anything that would come their way as they saw the end approaching. For us, it's the same way. As we see the day approaching, we need to be hyper aware, hyper vigilant, have clear communication established. He's saying be sober minded, be vigilant for the sake of your prayers. We see that it's extra important because as we see the day approaching, Satan is increasingly desperate to bring destruction to the church. And we as followers of Christ need to be increasingly vigilant against his attacks. There's also the sense in which he's saying your suffering is temporary so you can make it through this. You know what Jesus told the church in Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2 or 3? He said, some of you will be thrown into prison and you'll be, you'll be tried for, for 10 days. Isn't that interesting? Your time of suffering, your time of testing, it's 10 days. Can you make it for 10 days? It's temporary. And he said, be faithful unto death and I'll give you a crown of life. You can do just about anything for 10 days. Your suffering, your trials 
are temporary. And when you see them in light of eternity and in light of the coming judgment, you can take anything that's sent your way. So be sober-minded. Be in a right state of mind for the sake of your prayers. As the end approaches, an open line of communication with God is essential. And you can't afford to let anything into your life that undermines that. Ephesians 6 says, Praying at all times in in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all saints. We need to be prepared as the end approaches by being sober-minded and vigilant and praying always. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. I I love the way that in this letter, Peter switches so seamlessly between the theological elements of the letter and and practical instructions. And isn't that the nature of, of sound theology? It affects the way we live. It flows out of our life through love to each other, through service to each other, through purity and holiness, through making a clean break with sin. And the more we grasp who Christ is, the more we understand the gospel, the nature of what he has done with us and this, what he has done for us. And this is what Peter is saying through this letter, is the more it will flow out of our life in Pure conduct in holiness. Love each other earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. That word earnestly has its root in a word that means to stretch. Like an athlete stretches his muscles, exerts himself to accomplish a goal. Exert yourselves. In showing love to each other. Love each other earnestly. The idea is we don't just sit back casually and just state our love for each other. But it requires effort, action. Convicting, huh? It also has the idea of being constant. It's, it's not just a love that loves when it's easy or convenient. But it's a love that persists. When loving is most difficult. That, that's because love does cover a multitude of offenses. Proverbs 10:12 says love covers all offenses. 1 Corinthians 13 says he doesn't even keep a record of the wrong that's done against us. Show hospitality without grumbling. Use your various gifts to serve one another. That means whether you're, whether you're speaking or whether you're serving... You do it through the strength that God gives you. If you speak, you do it as a messenger of the oracles of God. That means you speak with with the responsibility of transmitting words from God, not just on your own strength, not just your own words. If you're serving, and it doesn't matter how, if you're serving in the kitchen, if you're redoing the fellowship hall, do it with the strength that God supplies so that in everything... 
God may be glorified in us through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. That's the result of lives that are dedicated to the service of God through his strength, is that Jesus Christ will be glorified. Verse 12, he kind of shifts back to this mindset of suffering that we started out with in in verse 1. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. As you're living a life of good conduct, you're back turned to your previous life of sin, your hope fully set on the grace that is to be revealed at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Don't be surprised when there's tests that come your way. Do you know why he tells us not to be surprised? Because we are surprised. How many times have you been going along in life and all of a sudden, bam, you're sideswiped by something? And it's almost always surprising, right? You're like, how could this be happening to me? How could God let this relationship fall apart? How could God let me walk through this suffering that no one else seems to understand? We're surprised by it. And he's saying, don't be surprised because this is what you should expect. Rejoice insofar as you're sharing in Christ's suffering. Expect the fiery trial which sooner or later will come along to test you. All who live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. Suffering precedes glory. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. You're you're sharing in it in the sense of you're having fellowship with Christ through his suffering. Paul said he aspired to share in the sufferings of Christ. He said in one place that that he was working to fill up what was lacking in the sufferings of Christ in his church. That's not saying that he was making up what was lacking in atonement for sin, but that in fact God uses ongoing suffering and trials to accomplish his glory in the church. Romans 5 says that we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because we know that suffering produces endurance. That means as you suffer trials, you develop endurance. And endurance produces character. There's character that God's building in you through that endurance as you endure trials. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. That word blessed means you are in a happy state. It's a condition. It's not just a feeling or emotion, but you are well off if you suffer for the name of Christ. Because the spirit of glory and of Christ rests on you. And I'm sure that we've all seen situations like that. Where someone goes through unspeakable suffering. And we look on and we say, wow. The spirit of glory and of Christ rests on that person. In a special way. You remember when Stephen was being martyred? 
when he spoke out about Christ and the gospel, the men, the men who were attacking him were so angry says they were gnashing with their teeth. And he looked up into heaven and he saw Christ at the right hand of God. And, and his face was like the face of an angel. There was a spirit of glory that was resting on him through the middle of his inter- intense suffering, which required him to give his life. Richard Wormbrand, who spent 14 years in prison in communist Russia, three years in solitary confinement, 12 feet underground, no windows, no light. He was mutilated, beaten, suffered unspeakable forms of torture. He said this, I have accepted this proposal. Christians are meant to have the same vocation as their king, that of cross-bearers. It is this conscience of a high calling and of partnership with Jesus, which brings gladness in tribulations, which makes Christians enter prisons for their faith with the joy of a bridegroom entering the bridal room. Isn't that an incredible statement from somebody who has experienced it firsthand, who was subjected to years of ongoing torture? He said his, at one time his feet were beaten to the point where pretty much all the, all the flesh was beaten off of them. He said there were no words to describe the pain. And yet he's saying that Christians, it's this commitment to suffer with Christ that brings Christians into these, these places of torture with the joy of a bridegroom entering the bridal room. He was also known to have said, I have found truly jubilant Christians only in the Bible, in the underground church, and in prison. That from a man who traveled widely in the West after he left Romania. There was a group that did a, uh, that did a bunch of bargaining. I think they, they spent like $10,000 to basically buy Richard Wormbrand off the hands of the communist Romanians. And they got him out of Romania, and he traveled widely through the West. I was trying to find the quote. I couldn't find it uh, exactly, but there was a pastor who, who said to him, it must be difficult to pastor a church in communist Romania. And he said, no. It must be difficult to pastor in the West where you don't know who the real Christians are. In Romania, we know who the real Christians are. James 1, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Don't be ashamed to suffer as a Christian. I'm glad those words are in there. You know why? Because I find in my own life, I don't know about you, but I find in my own life, sometimes I come under shame for suffering as a Christian. Whether it's just speaking out truth that isn't popular. There's this sense of like, you know, we're the underdog. He's saying, don't be ashamed. The apostles in, I think, uh, Acts chapter 5, after they had been interrogated by the council and they were beaten. It says they left the council and they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame, to suffer disgrace. 
for the name of Christ. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy. They, they, they counted that shame, that disgrace that was placed on them by others. They counted it as a badge of honor because they watched Jesus suffer the same things. Verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Judgment begins with us, with the house of God. This isn't the same kind of judgment that he was referring to earlier where the, the sinners will give account to God after death. But he's saying there is a form of judgment that comes to the house of God through trials and through suffering. And God uses those trials to purify the church. There's a cost associated with following Jesus. The, the, the apostles in the book of Acts, they taught that we must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of heaven. They saw the cost. They experienced the cost firsthand. Jesus said, strive to enter through the narrow door for many, I tell you, will, will try to enter and will not be able. He's saying there's a cost associated with being a follower of me. And many are going to make an attempt, but they will not be willing to pay the price to follow me. And Peter is saying the same thing. There is a purification that happens in the church as we confront trials and suffering. To see what our faith is made of. He talks about in chapter 1 that, that the trying of our faith is more precious than the, than the trial of gold that passes through fire so that all the impurities can be burned out. And God's doing that in your life through suffering, through trials. Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, he must... Take up his cross daily, that instrument of death. Every day you say, today I'm willing to die. I'm willing to give up my life. I'm willing to give up my desires in exchange for the glory that will rest on me as I do that. Second Thessalonians 1 says, therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. So it's Paul talking to the Thessalonians here, saying, We boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. He's saying, We boast about this because we're seeing the glory of God manifest in the church as you endure suffering and persecution. He says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. For which you are also suffering, since God indeed considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. You might be suffering now. Right now it looks like you're the underdog, but we know that God will bring to judgment those who are inflicting suffering on you. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted with us as as who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven 
with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. It says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the glory of the Lord and from the glory of his might. There is the outcome of the ungodly and the sinner that Peter was referring to. They will suffer eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all you who have believed because of our testimony to you who was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the fruit of judgment in the house of God. This is the fruit of enduring through trials. It's the fruit of not despairing, not losing hope when you're encountering suffering and trials. We participate in his suffering so that we may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The thing is, we have to be willing. We have to be willing to count the cost. Jesus said no one starts building a house without sitting down first and and, and asking, what's this going to cost? Do I have what it takes? We've been spending the last couple of days making a material list for a tiny home. And I'm calculating all of the cost of of the, the different things that I need to use and figuring out the time that it's going to take. Because I want to know, I want to be prepared as I go into this. Jesus said, you have to do the same thing if you're going to follow me. Sit down. Count the cost. Am I willing to give up everything else to follow Jesus? Am I willing to pick up my cross daily to follow him? So that... The spirit of glory and of God may rest on me so that when his glory is revealed, we'll be participants in his glory like we have been participants in his suffering. We'll be participants of his glory. Verse 19, I think this is just a summary that pretty much encapsulates this chapter and and really the entire letter. Listen to this. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good as you suffer according to god's will not as an evildoer but as a christian entrust your soul to a faithful creator because you know that he is working all things together for good for those who love god who are called according to his purpose let's pray god we thank you for jesus and the example that he gave us of glory through suffering. Glory that was reached through unspeakable suffering and trial. He set his face like a flint. He was unmoved because he saw the the goal that he was going for. Help us to emulate Jesus in that. To arm ourselves with the same mind that Christ had 
A mind that is willing to suffer. A mind that is willing to persist through trials. Because we know that the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls, the glory that will be revealed at the coming of Jesus will be so much greater. And these light afflictions will be eclipsed by the glory we'll experience when, you, when we see you face to face. And we look forward to that day more and more as we see the end approaching. Help us to be ready. Help us to be vigilant, to be sober-minded, to make a clean break with sin. God, I pray that if there is sin in our life or idolatry, or if we're going back to our former way of living, that you would expose that and help us to make a clean break with sin so that we can follow you wholly. So that we can entrust ourselves to you, our faithful creator, as we do good. In Jesus' name, amen.